0: as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. What a treat this conversation is. So Joe Keohane came on and really participated in a live conversation for our Back Together Better initiative when we were coming out of first coming out of the pandemic. But I met him two years ago. I was sitting in a sea of boxes, packing up my house to move to Germany. And he calls me on the phone. He says, hey, I want to come listen with you on the sidewalk. I'm working on a book on listening to strangers. And I'm so glad because you're going to get to listen to this episode right as his book is coming out. Look, He isn't just an accomplished journalist. He's held really high-level editing positions at Medium, Esquire, Entrepreneur, Hemispheres. He's appeared in New York Magazine, the Boston Globe, The New Yorker. He's also really so authentic, so high energy, and his curiosity just takes him into these directions that my own brain, that your brain is going to want to go. But he did all the legwork in answering all the questions for us about why the heck do we as people listening on sidewalks want to do it and does it matter? So this is a really informative conversation, an enlivening conversation. You're just going to get to meet a great human. But more than anything, I hope that you go out and buy his book on listening to strangers because Reality is, we're really, really skeptical of strangers, and we needn't be, and he'll talk to you all about it. So without further ado, Joe Keohane. Joe! So excited to get to hang out with you and introduce you to everybody.
1: It's great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched, psyched to be here. Psyched stuff, is such one of my favorite work. words. I've been, been listening to your other podcast episodes, and they're great, fascinating. Useful,
0: hard, Yeah, really I good. just wish that you know you called me. Oh gosh, I guess it's almost two years ago. Two weeks before I was moving to Germany, saying, "Hey, I really want to get out on the sidewalk and listen with you guys." I'm like, "Well, I'll give you some names of some of our chapter leaders, but they were already like shutting down for the summer or not as active." Yeah, so yeah, I I'm still really glad to we get
1: to I'm I'm still, you know, the, the research for the book is done, but I'd still love to do it just to get a sense of how it works and what kind of response you get. It's such a great project.
0: Well, we've got a very active. New York chapter. So I'm excited to be here. So let's tell everyone about you. Can, can you give us a high level on your sort of, I, I sort of have this, um, I really admire writers because you take people's beautiful stories and turn them into things that come from the head and really make them go into people's hearts. So tell people about your writing career and who you've written for and why you write.
1: Thanks. Yeah. I write because I have no other skills. Um, there's no other role for me in the world. That has become evident. Oh,
0: burst my bubble? Um,
1: <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I have no choice. It makes it a lot easier to do it professionally when you have no other option. Um, I grew up in Boston. I am the child and sibling of funeral directors um, who are very chatty people and really funny people and very social people. So a lot of my interests come from that. Um, that was formative. Uh, I've lived in New York for about 10 years. I married a woman from New York to so the horror of my family and the horror of my friends.
0: Yeah, that's not cool away. for a Boston guy. So do you, hey, you got, are you a bet I'm still a, Are you a Boston Red Sox fan or are you going
1: no, for the? No. They, I mean, if, when people leave Boston, everyone there interprets it as a judgment on their choices. Um, so it's taken very personally. Uh, I haven't been a Red Sox fan since they won the World Series in 2004, uh, at which point I couldn't come up with a compelling reason to be a Red Sox fan anymore if they're actually going to win. Um, okay. if they weren't going to find new ways of shattering me emotionally every year, I just couldn't find room for it in my life. Uh, it was like, like rooting for Goldman Sachs or something at a certain point. Um, but I still wear a Red Sox hat in New York, which is actually, I talk about this in the book, um, which is very interesting. Um, even though I'm not a Red Sox fan, I will wear a Red Sox hat in New York because, uh, it's my hometown and I like the hat. But the funny thing about it is that it gives strangers license to just start talking to me. Um, they will just come right up to me and start talking to me. They feel they can trust me. They feel that I'm one of them. They feel that we have something in common right out of the gate. So like that hat basically gets us around some of the major impediments to getting people to talk to each other. Um, And so it's always very puzzling to them when they're just like, you see the game last night? And I have no answer because I haven't followed the team in literally 17 years or something. So now they feel betrayed, um, confused, (laughs) you know, because I'm wearing it, but I'm not like I'm wearing it like a, like a sign of the group, but I'm not really a member of the group in a way. Um, it's, it's made for some very interesting interactions. Uh, and it happens every single time I wear the hat out of the house.
0: I love this. I think there's a whole host of human connection props. Puppies are props. When I move back to San Francisco, I'm gonna for sure get a Dodgers hat now and just wear that around. I'm sure that'll invite all kinds of conversation. A kids are props. I never had more people come up and talk to me than when I had a little baby in my arms. Or when I was pregnant, having right. a pregnant belly is a prop. What it else? Makes, what else are props for human connection? It true.
1: I mean, it doesn't take that much. It only takes a little bit. Um, you, you know, there's the kind of pessimistic reading of humans that we're like inherently xenophobic. But um, it really doesn't take that much for people to feel comfortable with you. You know, the fact that people would feel comfortable walking up to me in the middle of the street in Manhattan because I'm wearing a certain hat um, is inspiring and heartening to me. Like, it's not that hard. It's not hard, that hard for a total stranger to be like, oh, yeah, we can get along just because of this piece of fabric on my head. Uh, It's amazing. It's pretty cool, but um, but yeah. To go back to your question, I've been a journalist for 20 years, uh, mostly editing the newspapers and magazines. I've written for everybody: The Times, The New Yorker. I was an editor at Esquire for several years. I ran some magazines. I ran some newspapers, and um, I sold this book um, in 2018, I think. Um, So since then, I've just been just been doing this freelancing a little bit, but trying to write full time. which is where my heart is anyways. I I love editing, I love other journalists, I love working on people's stuff, but um, the experience of doing this was just totally inspiring and totally fascinating and and really satisfying. So I would like to continue doing it. Why did you do it? What's that? Why'd you do it? Why'd I do the book? Yeah. Um, It's funny, so I was uh, I dabble in screenwriting a little bit and I won a fellowship a few years ago That was part of the nantucket film festival it was run by an organization called the screenwriters colony and they pick four fellows um per season or per year i don't remember um for like comedy tv writing and so i wrote a pilot and they liked it and they they brought me on um for this fellowship it was two weeks and you're in a house with three other writers and executives and producers and other writers and like you're just learning the business and you're learning the stuff and so Basically, what we did was work during the day and then we just went out all night every night. I mean, we were just going to like crazy rich people parties in Nantucket. And like the the variety of crazy on display in Nantucket is like hysterically funny. It's like if you combined ordinary like rich people weirdness with like island rich people weirdness and it supercharges into like a (laughs) profoundly unusual form of weirdness. So we would go to all these parties at all these houses. And um, and one night I was talking to the other writers and I was saying, you know, journalism is a tough racket to be in now because it's the business is falling apart. Like the fundamentals of the market have collapsed. Yeah. The ad market collapsed. The subscription market collapsed. It's it's pretty bloody out there. It's pretty hard. But I was saying, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world because one of the skills it gave me for doing it for so long was the ability to talk to strangers. And so I was like, look, it's like crazy. It's like four o'clock in the morning when I'm giving this spiel. Right. Um, and we were getting a cab back to our house. And so I was like, look, I'll just I'll just talk to this cab driver. And, and I can almost promise that, like, they'll be, we'll, get, they'll, we'll hear something interesting. There'll be something interesting. And so I get into the cab and I start talking to the woman and she's at that point. She was in her late 60s and she had this crazy story that wasn't hard to get to um, about how she had these kind of vapid socialite parents who went in for this crazy socialite trend of bond of binding their kids cabs. Uh, to give them like more shapely calves, like in, like they had unsightly calves, they had to bind them in order to like make them attractive. So they crippled her. Um, she had a limp. She still has a limp to this day. And so I was shocked by this, and I was like, "Well, what you know? Were they sorry? Did they do anything to to like um, help you recover from this? Like, what did they do?" And she goes, "No, they didn't do anything. They made me take dancing lessons." And I said, "Why did they make you take dancing lessons?" And her answer was, "Because they wanted to teach me to fall down more gracefully." So for me, that's such a profound, I mean, that's such a great point about existence as a human in a lot of ways, like falling down gracefully is kind of the name of the game in a way, Uh, but I loved it. And so I thought I started thinking, you know, why don't I have these conversations more? Because I hadn't been doing it that much. You know, I had a young child. I had a demanding job. Um, I was tired. I was overscheduled. And I this part of my life that I used to do, you know, with some regularity had disappeared. So I started thinking asking the question of why don't I do this anymore? And then I started kind of widening the lens and saying, why don't people in general talk to strangers and wondering when they will and wondering what happens when they do. Um, And from there, I just went completely bonkers on research um, and just drove myself crazy answering the question from every imaginable angle from psychology, sociology, politics, gender, urban design, um, anything I could think of, you know, um, anthropology, how, you know, I studied how um, traditional societies dealt with strangers, I studied the evolution of hospitality towards strangers, and how that became like a cornerstone of human civilization, I studied um, the formation of cities, how people came to live in cities, which, um, you know, after hundreds of 1000s of years of being like, kind of wary of strangers, humans are automatic, like, suddenly found themselves in a situation where they were willfully making themselves they were surrounding themselves with strangers so why did that happen why didn't that lead to like a massive freak out you know it has i mean it has in some cases but for the most part like how is it possible that we're able to live in relative harmony in cities if we're supposed to be like such a profoundly xenophobic species and and we're supposed to have this default where we fear and hate strangers um but yeah that's the that's the the long and short of it, but it went in a lot of different directions. And while I was doing it, I was gathering tips and insights into getting good at talking to strangers and looking at what keeps us from doing it and looking at ways around that um, and trying all the stuff out myself. Um, I did it all over New York. I went to Helsinki. I went to London. I took classes. I went to, you know, um, I attended Gatherings by organizations that facilitate these things. I did Urban Confessional. I really wanted to do Sidewalk Talk, and I promise I will. But um, but I just did it, and I did it, and I did it, and I did it um, until I could get at it. Um, and then you know the the book is kind of like a wide view of these issues we have with strangers, um, a review of the literature on why it's good for us, why it's good for society, and then like a pretty actionable guide to, to doing it yourself, to getting past um, the, the hesitation you might have about it or the anxiety you might have about it and, um, and take advantage of something that's like a pretty powerful resource that's readily available.
0: So did it improve your life?
1: Uh, no, it ruined it. No, I'm just kidding. It was
0: great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, was,
1: uh, it was amazing because what does it do, right? I mean, it, in a way, every time you speak to a stranger, um, if you learn to do it well, um, you get a little glimpse of what the lives of an, the life of another person is like, right? Um, and that's huge. So even if 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 I compliment you on your glasses, right? If I see you somewhere and I say, look, I'm you know I know we're not supposed to talk to strangers on the subway, but I really like your glasses. You know my wife is looking for a new pair of glasses. So, you know, could you tell me where you got them? And you tell me a little bit about the glasses? You'll be giving me a little, a tiny little glimmer of what it's like to be you, right? And so if I express curiosity and I'm not being aggressive and I'm not being creepy about it, um, maybe I ask a question and maybe you tell me a little bit more. And, and these kind of even short, meaningful conversations just give you a look at this other universe that is a person, right? A stranger. And yeah. it makes it really difficult for you to maintain the idea that strangers are simple or valueless or a threat or anything like that, right? It forces you to engage with the complexity of people you don't know. Um, that's valuable all the time. It's especially valuable when you're talking to someone who's like of a different group than you are, because, you know, as, as you know, we have a tendency to, you know, lightly to heavily dehumanize people who are not in the same groups we are. That becomes more difficult to do when you routinely have interactions with people in which they give you a sense of their own complexity and their own individuality and their own lives. So for me, it's a, it's a doorway to wisdom. Um, it becomes very difficult to dismiss a group of people when you've had good engagements with members of that group, even if it's a few people, you know, like I have a relative who um, goes to like a Vietnamese nail salon and so has relationships with three Vietnamese women and cannot sing the praises of the Vietnamese people highly enough, you know, based on three people. And that can go in a weird direction sometimes too, But but that's all it really takes. Like she would never be able to say, negative things about the entirety of the Vietnamese people, because those three people have taken residence in her brain in a way. Right. It's like a, it's like a check against prejudice. So say for example, you know, I'm like a liberal New Yorker. I've spent a lot of time in the deep South and I've had a lot of good interactions with people. Um, even though we disagree vehemently on some stuff, it makes it really hard for me to be like F the self because I always think of those people. I think of the people who are the, um, the exceptions to the rule, such as it is, I think of the fact that I connected with them, that I like them personally, you know, that I yeah. think there's the potential of working together on something. Would it be a hot button issue? Probably not. But would it be something simpler that we can we can agree we can agree upon? We can talk about. Yeah, I think so. So, having done this a lot, it, it's hard for me, and I tend toward pessimism. Anyways, it's hard for me to maintain that because I've had so many good interactions with people over the last couple of years as I did this. Um, it keeps me from just being a bastard. <laughs> I just be, you know, <laughs> well, we need more kind of that, of, <laughs> right? But yeah, I, I, you know, I don't want it to seem like um, I'm a Pollyanna or something, or that I was even naturally inclined to this necessarily. I mean, I'm always curious about people because it's my business, but um, I was surprised by the change that came over me from the experience of doing this, for sure. I think it's been, you know, to to have this sort of transformational experience past the age of forty, um, I think is pretty good. You know, it shows the it shows the potential for growth over time.
0: So you're like this jaded journalist journalist. and writer and editor. You've you've got a a wife and a young kid. You're super Super busy. busy. And yet yet, listening to strangers has given you a transformational boost.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it was free.
0: free. Well, except for all the research you did. but Right.
1: Yeah. Research is the cost of books, cost of phone calls. Um, a little bit of travel, but yeah, what it did was, um, my life had become much smaller. Um, you have, you have a kid or multiple kids? Two. Me, two, two boys. Kids. Okay. So you know how that is when you have a little kid your life, just like slam shut. And now it's you and like a very small number of people in a very intense situation. Right. Um, and it's great and it's rich and it's serendipitous in a lot of ways, but I definitely came to miss the randomness that I used to have before I was in such a structured life. So, you know, for example, walking into a bar and chatting with a bartender, and this is something that, ha- that happened and just seeing what he's interested in and just letting him lead until he ended up telling me about the mating habits of the leopard slug, which is something that happened one time. It was fascinating, but I didn't. I never even knew what a leopard slug was. So by having these interactions, um, it introduced a lot of serendipity. I mean, it gave me a lot of ch- it gave me a chance to, to become a more empathetic person, a more curious person. Certainly, a better listener because um, I definitely have a tendency to be kind of a loudmouth. So, like becoming conscious of being domineering was really useful. Um, but I just kept getting these little glimpses of other people's experiences, uh, and it was great. And oftentimes, it was hilariously funny, and sometimes it was really moving. But I, I think about those experiences a lot, and they—they they definitely um, have colored the way I see the world. You know, I should say because I was very busy at the time I was doing this. Um, it didn't take that much time. I just had to resolve to do it. So even if you're super busy and you can't do what I used to love to do, which is just to hang out in bars or coffee shops, um, you can get little fixes of this in really interesting ways. Uh, you can talk to cashiers, you know, um, the experience of a cashier. I feel like it's really valuable for people to understand what it's like to be in a service job if they haven't done it themselves. It's really valuable to know what it feels like to be um, perceived as like a droid, you know, like a mechanism um, for facilitating exchanges, uh, because they are, it's dehumanizing to work in service. Um, it can be, it can def- definitely be hard. Um, and so just because I didn't have a lot of time, I would talk to people in the supermarket. I would talk to people when I was getting coffee and, and you just get a sense of what their lives were like. Um, they would be excited to tell you just because no one cares about the barista. No one cares about the, the woman working at the supermarket, but their stories are great. Um, I was in a, a particularly hellish whole foods in my neighborhood, which, on a Sunday is just like I wrote about this in the book, but it's like the last flight out of Casablanca in like nineteen forty It's the place <laughs> of the nightmare, and it's frantic and it's crowded and every it's just like kind of upper upper class upper middle class people in like gym clothes um on edge, like ready to kill each other to get the last pomegranate or whatever um and I love pomegranates, but I'm not willing to kill another person for one. So I was waiting in line and I noticed this cashier and she was really working it. Like she was trying to joke with people. She was talking to people. Um, and I could hear as I got up closer that she was funny, smart, you know, just like bantering, just running her mouth. Um, and people were looking at her like she was a talking bird. Right. It was like an emu had wandered in and was talking to them. And there was this mix of like confusion and and light fear that um, <laughs> these like. Kind of bourgeois bohemian types were, were greeting this woman with. So I was, I was interested. I was interested in why she was doing that and, and why, why, what kind of person she was that would be that chatty. And, you know, people like that are interesting to me. And so I got up there and I was like, you know, they should give you combat pay for working here on a Sunday. This place is a nightmare.
0: And she was, <laughs> like,
1: she was like, I always tell my boss that I want them to install a therapist in the back room. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, what would you tell the therapist? And she was like it's not what i would tell the therapist it's what i would need the therapist to tell me and i was like well what do you need the therapist to tell you and she goes these are not your friends and this is not your fault um which was really poignant and really beautifully said but for someone who i think if you weren't in the mindset of engaging with you might be annoyed you might be confused you might be like look lady i want to look at my phone i don't want to have a conversation with you but just by putting in that tiny 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 little bit of effort and exercising a tiny bit of curiosity. Um, she said something that I, I will never forget. It's a great line, you know, and in a very, a very short little line, she gives you a sense of like what it's like to be her, um, which seems to be a smart, extroverted, soulful person, um, and not a service droid, you know, um, yeah. and I did a lot of that. So that's stuff you can do all the time, you don't need a lot of you don't need to hang around. They're definitely great gains to be had by like putting time into this. Um, and I did a lot of that too, just like hanging around the city, just observing things, watching people. But, um, but even when I was really busy, I was able to do this pretty extensively. Um, and I found it super fruitful and, and, and challenging and fun and interesting.
0: This is so fun. I, I want to ask you more about the book, but the, the story about this woman just makes me want to ask this question because you use the word serendipitous. Do you ever feel, like there's a little bit of magic involved. Like maybe a stranger comes across your path that has just the right thing for you in that moment in time. And you're like, man, if I hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have gotten this little piece of magic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like uh, Jillian Sandstrom, who's a psychologist at the University of Essex, who's great, who you should have on because she's... She
0: was on last week.
1: Oh, great. Awesome. I love Jillian. Um... She calls it a magic trick. She called it you basically, you know, it's like a conjuring um, in a way. It's taking raw material that you expect very little from. And again, this goes back to like our curious psychology about strangers. Like we don't expect much much from strangers. And the reason is we have this tendency to assume that they're less intelligent than we are, or they don't have the same self-control, or they might actually be dangerous. All these things. We we have a tendency to slightly dehumanize strangers. We also have a capacity to greatly dehumanize strangers under stress. But so you take something that you're not expecting a lot of, a lot from just like a face in the crowd, which, you know, when you live in a city, it means nothing to you it really does. Like, it's hard to say, but a, a person in the city is an obstacle. It's like someone I need to get around in order to get to the subway. Um, and I felt that way for a long time until I kind of learned to look in a different way. Um, but you take this person and you ask simple questions. And like, it's remarkable what will come up. You know, and you're always pleasantly surprised because you expect nothing. <laughs> you know, it's, you're like, oh, it talks. Amazing. Uh, that's why everyone who does this is always just like, I'm always pleasantly surprised. It's it was like it's because your expectations are so low for these interactions. Like at worst, you expect to be murdered. Um, at best, you expect a person that just doesn't have anything special to say. Um, but when they do, you're kind of shocked by it. You get a taste of like a powerful intelligence and you get a taste of like deep experience and sometimes, like a sense of soul um, out of people that were essentially, in your eyes, props for a very long time. Um, so it really is like a magic trick. Um, it's a conjuring. Um, and Jillian talks about this too. It's like um, um, it's like a superpower when you learn how to do it. All of a sudden, you have access to all these different worlds. Um, and it really is. I mean, there's like a I came upon a line in Jewish scripture that was. Um, every person is a is a universe. So if you kill someone, you should consider that you've killed a universe. Um, when you think of like the richness of someone's experience and then all the people they know and their relationships and their hopes and their dreams, like it's a there's a lot in a person. And when you talk to them, you get to travel to that little universe. You get to interact with it. And I think the effect in many ways is similar to travel. Um, there's a great English historian by the name of Theodore Zeldin, who I spent some time with in Helsinki, he wanted to go to, to Finland to teach the Finns how to talk to strangers, because the Finns are really bad at talking to strangers. And Zeldin's whole thing is like, he, he organized this group called the the um, Oxford Muse Foundation, which sets up these massive dinners where they pair strangers for like two-hour intense conversations. Uh, and I've done some of those, and they're, they're fantastic. Um, but Zeldin, he's made it his life's mission to talk to as many strangers as he possibly can. He's in his 90s now, so he's racked up some pretty good numbers. Um, And I remember he said, he was telling me why he did it. And he was like, I suppose I'm, ai suppose I'm an explorer. And thinking of it that way, was really useful framing for me, um, because you really are, I mean, you're exploring hidden corners of your world, but you're also in a way kind of exploring these universes that other people represent. Um, and if you go about it, if you, if you travel those worlds, the way you, a good conscientious traveler would, when you like go to another country or something, you're respectful, you're curious, you know, you don't have the answers. Um, you know, you kind of maintain a light footprint. Um, it can be super gratifying and it can expand you. It can expand your perspective. It can make you smarter and wiser and and um, give you great stories and, and all this stuff. But it really is like it's a, it's a form of exploration. Um, and a lot of people who do this and advocate for this, um, conceive of it in those terms, which makes them so much fun to hang out with because they're just like, let me add them. You know, they're really interested in people. Um, and once you find out that people really will repay that curiosity, it's great. It's so rewarding.
0: You're speaking my language, right? <laughs> I'm like sitting here and I'm having like these little popcorn lightning bolts go off in me of all these just pleasant, amazing m- moments of connection with strangers because yeah. A, I love the association that you just made. It really is like going on vacation to a foreign country. You literally get that same hit where your entire se- your brain is scrambled. You're like, oh, my God, I just came back from a vacation because nothing that you know about the world is the same. And that's super good for the brain.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Super good for the brain to have that kind of infusion of novelty all the time. I mean, when we go out on the sidewalk, people are lit up after we go out for dinner and they're just the energy and electricity from all the listeners. It's just like, oh, because we just got a free vacation, you know, mm-hmm. right. um, you, I want to yeah, get back you to your book, though. I want to yeah. learn something from you because you did all this juicy research that I'm so excited by. I want to learn like. What were some of the things when you were researching, talking to strangers that you were completely surprised by, like pieces of research that you were surprised by and that really shaped how you show up now?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, One of the things that I was telling someone else, I I try I try out bits at, at parties which I can now go to parties again, which is amazing. So I went to a party over the weekend. And I like, to, I like to pitch, right? So I'll pitch stuff and see what resonates with people. So mm-hmm. I was over at my my a friend, friend's house. And um, I was saying there was, there's a lot of really interesting work on hospitality. So you look at the long arc of humanity in as much as we can really know it, like based on what we know. Um, humans were hunter-gatherers for a long time. And that meant that they were constantly moving. Um, it meant that their groups were intermingling. Sometimes new people would join the group. If there was enough food to sustain it, sometimes they would go away. But they were basically like small societies. It would be six to 24 people is the estimate and a hunter-gatherer band. And so, you know, that's just the way things were for a very long time. Probably 95% of our existence in the world has been as hunter-gatherers. And so all of a sudden, with the advent of agriculture, people start to settle down. Now you have the concept of owning land. Um, you have the concept of living in the same place for a, a long time, which was never the way before. That's actually, you know, people talk about property rights like there's some kind of natural law. But, this, you know, we went a long time without anyone believing that they owned land. It's kind of a crazy idea for for uh, traditional societies because you can't stay in the same place. You always have to move. So once people started farming, they settled down. They had little communities, right? Um, something else happened at that same time. So now you have sedentary villages, sedentary communities. But you also had this crazy phenomenon um, called the surplus male. And what the surplus male is, and this is according to work by um an English archaeologist named Martin Jones who studies deep DNA, like ancient DNA and population flows, ancient population flows. Stuff's great. Um, because people were farming instead of hunting as their subsistence, now men didn't really have anything to do anymore. Because they you know, it was, you know, there is evidence that there were female hunters, but for the most part, like, you know, men did the hunting. Um, women did gathering. Um, and everyone pooled child care. But now you have a bunch of guys who just don't have anything to do. Like, they're not really hunting. They're not eating as much meat. Um, they have no purpose. So these are the surplus males. So Jones's idea was that, um, and it's backed up from his study of ancient DNA. Um, these men just left. They just started walking away. Um, and, Previous to settlements, they wouldn't be able to get very far because you needed other people to live. You needed to pool your resources. Um, but now that there are settlements, these men could walk until they found a settlement, right? So now you have like the traditional idea of what a stranger is, which is like someone no one knows appears in town. And so what do you need to do? You have to figure out if this person is going to be a threat, if they're going to be an agent of chaos. Um, so you had this ambivalence, right? So you're in a little you're in a little settlement. It's probably kind of boring. There's not a lot of people around and you're farming. Now, this guy turns up. You have no idea who he is. Could you kill him? Yeah, you could kill him, but you don't know if there are a bunch of people who know him over the crest of the hill, right? Maybe they're going to come and wipe out your village, maybe this is a trap, maybe it's a spy. You have to be careful. You don't know what his intentions are. And because human psychology makes us wary of strangers and makes us gives us this tendency to dehumanize them you kind of assume that this guy's trouble, or he could be trouble. So Jones's idea is that the idea of the, the, the ritual of hospitality was a way of admitting the stranger into your settlement, um, because strangers are valuable. They know different things. They might know new farming techniques. They might have gifts to bring. They might just be fun to hang around with. Um, we're attracted to strangers in that way, but we're also afraid of them. So hospitality reconciled the threat that a stranger could pose with the opportunity that they present. And so you would sit down, and you would be face to face, you'd be looking each other in the eye, and you would share food. Maybe there'd be an exchange of some kind of ornamental thing, um, but you'd get com- you'd get comfortable with each other. Um, and once you're comfortable with each other, now you feel safe. Now you can have a real exchange. You can have a conversation. Um, and then the guy stays the night, and you're friendly, and he goes somewhere else. Now you know theoretically, you if you go somewhere else, you might run into him, and now he owes you a favor. Um, meanwhile, he goes to the next settlement. And the same thing happens again. And in that way, all of a sudden social networks explode and humans radiate out um, with the speed that they never had before, because these settlements became transit hubs for solitary men. Um, This can lead to the spread of innovations. It can lead to a growing of relationships and all this good stuff. But Jones's idea was that this is the cornerstone of civilization, the fact that we were able to process strangers in this way and build relationships when our natural instinct is to be wary, we came up with a structure that allowed us to make these connections. And those connections became really valuable. So you look at the Greek world, you know, when humans radiated out of Africa and and kind of went across the Mediterranean, um, the Greek world lacked strong central institutions, it was chaotic, it was dangerous, you know, the time of like classical Greece. Um, So hospitality became everything, it became extremely important because you couldn't rely on police, you couldn't rely on government. All you could rely on for news um, and for protection and for the right of travel is the relationships that you would develop um, by being hospitality, hospita- hospitable to strangers. So it's amazing because it's like the Bible. I mean you read the Odyssey and the Odyssey is all about hospitality and again and again and again someone will be inhospitable and someone else will be like, what are you, crazy? Like why are you doing this? Um, and it was so important that it became part of religion for the Greeks, whereas Zeus was the god of strangers Who would pretend to be a stranger to make sure that people were being hospitable and then he would like turn them into birds if they weren't he was a lot of people were turned into birds for violating the law of hospitality uh i found so many of those stories um but i love that i love that idea that like you know the the one of the more curious things about humans is that we are neophobic and neophilic at the same time we're afraid of new things but we love new things um, and the thing that makes us open to new things and new ideas and new people is a feeling of safety and control. So when we feel out of control, um, we are neophobic generally. And if we, fe- if we can be made to feel comfortable, then we can really open ourselves up to new experiences and new ideas. Um, you know, I'm interested in pushing back in this pessimistic idea of people that they're like closed and clannish and, and tribal and xenophobic, and um, they certainly can be and they certainly have been. You know again and again and again in history, but we still have these capacities. We still have this curiosity to us. And that curiosity evolves for a reason. And the reason is because it's in our benefit to grow our social networks, to have friends, you know, to make contacts. This is the thing that enabled the spread of humanity. So taking a really simple little thing like that was super interesting to me because it's like, you know, there hasn't been a ton about that. There's been a ton about what, like, what hospitality can represent, which is like, the introduction of a new world, you know, the mystery of a stranger, all that stuff, but like kind of combining the mythology and a lot of anthropological research into how traditional societies viewed hospitality, which is universal. Um, it's not just Greece, it's all over the world. Like before the rise of strong institutions everywhere, like people were hospitable and it wasn't necessarily passed from one culture to another. It was like a universal solution to the problem of strangers. Um, but I just love, I love the idea that, you know, that allowed humans to spread. Um, and that allowed, you know, it was a way to get comfortable with other people in a way that we could work together, we could grow our networks, and um, we can make it a little easier for ourselves in the world.
0: That is so cool. I'm totally geeky now. And you know, what's really weird is that I spent 14 years in the hospitality industry, mm. waiting tables and bartending. So yeah. it's totally in my DNA. And boy, do I have a mean story to so many stories. I mean, again... But what I'm hearing you say is it became sort of a part of our social order when there wasn't a centralized social order. Yeah. Super cool. I I do have to ask. I don't you know, I I got a galley of your book and took some initial looks through it, but haven't read the whole thing. But there seems to be this like. Idea. I mean, I think what I really love is that you're going further back in time, because it's almost like all the solutions to loneliness and disconnection, we're still only thinking about right now. I'm like, but we should probably go further back and really consider how was how this a problem or not a problem? And when was it not a problem? And I'm just curious what thoughts you have about this, this sort of new sort of interest in loneliness after this pandemic, and certainly after some of the research about its impacts on our health.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a disaster. It's a major, it's a major social problem. Um, it's a major personal problem. Um, it leads to all sorts of terrible health, health outcomes. Um, it's great to see people talking about it. It's great that it's not being seen as an admission of weakness, right? Cause that's a big thing. I think with the previous generation, if you're like, I'm feeling lonely, like you weren't going to get a lot of sympathetic hearings out of that from like our hard ass parents generation. Sure. Where like feelings were kind of verboten. Um, the great thing is there's an interest in it. There's research being done on it. This is all great. Um, people are beginning to realize, which they, I think what they knew intellectually, but they, they, they weren't feeling deep down, which is that we're a, we're a social species. Um, we need to socialize, um, in the way that we need food. We need it to stay sane. We need it to stay healthy. Uh, it's really important. And, you know, in, it's different depending on what part of the world you're talking about, but in a lot of Western countries, um, There has been this kind of withdrawal from public life um, and not public life in the sense of like running for office, but public life in the sense of interacting with strangers that live around you, being out in public, going to the movies like Rob, Robert Putnam's book Bowling Alone gets into that. Um, we have very much withdrawn into our rooms, right? Um, and partly it's because our entertainment options are so much better that you don't have to sit in the stoop to like amuse yourself anymore like previous generations of city dwellers did. Um, and it's making us lonely. Um, it's not great for us. Um, digital communication can be a bit of a, it, it can kind of augment your social diet, but it's, it's not the same as doing it in person. So recognizing that is cool. For me, coming out of the coronavirus, pand- uh, coming out of the, you know, the, the crisis, what I hope, and I mentioned this in the end of the book, um, I hope we see what we've lost. I think the opportunity that COVID presents us with is it took us very quickly to the conclusion that we were slowly moving towards, anyways, which was 100 million, 300 million individuals alone in rooms looking at screens, right? And I like, I, I text all the time. I love email. Like, I'm, I'm not a what I. But this is a process that was probably going to take another 10 to 15 years, and it happened instantaneously. So, what we can do now is we can look at what our lives were like over the last year and say, what do we think of this? Do we want to go on like this? Is this what we want? Um, because this is where it's heading, without question. Um, or do we want to try to do something else? So knowing what we know about a lot of the crises that are facing us right now, um, and even, you know, you can make the argument that polarization, political polarization is an is a outcome of loneliness, of estrangement, of feeling disconnected and feeling like you don't belong to the world, for sure. You hear it every interview you read with someone who's like way out on the fringes. Um, now we can choose. And so what I wanted to do with the book is I wanted to make the case for that, Uh, make the case for the idea that it's natural, that we evolved because we were social. um, And now we're not social. So what do we want to do? You know, the answer is pretty simple to our problem. Um, And I wanted to give people tips on how to do it. So, you know, I, I, like I said, I did classes, I went through a lot of research and and came up with some pretty good pointers for it. Um, But for me, yeah, I think it's, This is a really hard year for everybody. I think this is a tremendous opportunity to pause for a minute minute and and reassess. And the great thing is, you know, you talk to Jillian. Jillian is the master of this stuff, but there's a growing body of research that shows that even, you know, minimal social interactions, which I think is what Jillian calls it, um, even little passing interactions can make you feel less lonely. It can make you feel happier. It can enhance a sense of well-being. But most importantly, it can enhance a sense of belonging. And I think you know, so many of our crises, um, not ecological crises, but almost every crisis we're facing right now is a crisis of belonging. Um, I c- covered politics for a long time, so I've always you know, read a lot of poli-sci stuff. But again and again and again, you see like people feel that they don't belong. They feel that they're, they're under attack. They feel that the world is taken away from them. They feel that the world doesn't take them seriously. All these things. Um, and this happens for a lot of reasons. Um, but the knowing that that can be maybe not cured, but certainly treated, um, with a quick chat with your barista at Starbucks every morning that you can feel like you belong to a place, um, with that, that small investment um, is, is a revelation. It's really important. And I think it can be, you know, we, we need to connect with the people we love and the, and the people we're close to, but there's a world of people who, if you talk to, like, it will really make you feel like you belong, um, in the place where you live. It'll make the world seem smaller and friendlier and less chaotic, you know, uh, it's great. It's just super beneficial, um, on top of like the stuff that's just like learning interesting things. Um, that aspect of it is, is fascinating. And, and I found it to be super powerful.
0: You just totally ins- just got me all juiced up and excited for all the <laughs> stuff that we do. You know, for sure, I love yeah. what you, I love what you just said. And I want to highlight it before we move into our final question. Um, this idea, and I do have to tell a story because I just feel like telling one story. Do it. Um, I love that what you just said, we evolved, we evolved. And and grew as a society because we became more social. And now we're becoming less social. And in a way, that's directly leading to our harm. Yeah. Yeah, without question. So it's not just personally that being connected is good for us, but it tends to lead to better innovation. And when we're lonely, it tends to lead to destruction, is what I hear Mm -hmm. you saying. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. and I, I agree. I'm a big believer in common enemy intimacy. We love to get involved in fringy stuff when we're lonely and don't feel like we belong. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I do have to tell you this funny story about. So I'm because I was in the hospitality industry. I'm super snobby. When I go into the same restaurant, if I've been there many times and you don't remember me anymore, I don't. I'm like, I'm done. And so I always frequent restaurants where I feel like it's a family. So I'll just name them. Morning Dew in San Francisco is my place. I know all the, the owner. I know his wife. I know their kid. They know what I eat. <laughs> the Village Pub in Woodside has a file on me, so they know what I like to eat. <laughs> so I'll come in and I can say, just bring me three courses with a half a glass of wine with each course, you know? And I love that stuff. And I remember in college when I bartended, the, all of us wait staff would go to the same bar after work with Willie. I don't think Willie's alive anymore, but I graduated from college and I hadn't been back in six years. I go in with my current boyfriend to Willie's bar. Haven't been there in six years. He's down there very, you know, very focused on the bar. And and to me, he's like the real bartender. He walks over and I'm, of course, thinking I'm going to have to do the small talk. Do you remember me? Doesn't do that. He puts the coaster down. He says, dirty martini straight up with three olives like I had just been in last week. I was like, wow.
1: Yeah, and, th- and think about what that does for you too. It, it takes a chaotic, fast changing environment like San Francisco, like any city, and it creates fixed points, right? So you could go back to that place and you know that you will be seen, they will recognize you, they will appreciate you. Um, it's just like, it. it um, it kind of roots you in the world in a really important way. I mean, New York is, is a lot of that stuff too. My, the guy at my bodega who like I always chat with, like he's the guy in the corner. I say hi to him every day. Um, you know, if we're going to be promoting businesses, um, and if you come to New York anytime soon, we'll go. But, um, but Raul's in Soho is my place. So okay. it's like, um, it's a, it's fascinating because you find sometimes that individual businesses have cultures. They have their own cultures. And sometimes the culture is no one talks to anyone. And sometimes the culture is like, it is open season. Uh, Raoul's is a, an absolute free for all. Um, it's a great restaurant. Like it's a, it's a, been around for a really long time. Um, but the, the culture of the place is there's no bubble. You don't have a bubble. If someone hears you say something, um, and it's interesting to them, they're going to get involved. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be rowdy. Uh, and a lot of people who hang out there are like work in TV and movies. And there's a lot of painters um, like artists go there, um, finance people like it's always a really good mix of people. But it's riotous. Um, it's so fun. And it really is like it's just a con- full contact sport. Uh, and it's my favorite place in New York. I'm going there in two weeks, actually. But um, but I, I became really interested in places that were like that. So my caf- the place where I get coffee is a place called Cafe Martin in Brooklyn. And I came to know the owner from going there. But you go in there, and you're just fair game. Like, if you're reading a book that someone's interested in, like, you're not going to be reading that book for long.
0: <laughs> they're going to talk to you. That.
1: It's the best. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I just became interested in like the formation of these like microcultures. Yeah. Um, in places like that, where they are like they're socially open, you know, uh, and you just get into. I mean, like Raoul's is a special thing because I've just gotten into some like crazy situations in that place. Um, talking to like. <laughs> you know, crazy people and fascinating people. And, um, like Owen Wilson hangs out in there sometimes. And, uh, it's just like a a real mix of people and it's, it's very democratic, you know, everybody can talk to everyone else. It's just quintessentially New York and quintessentially kind of America in that way that
0: I kind of like, um, I kind of like, I like New York for that reason though. I feel like Mm -hmm. there's so much room to be a self in New York. So, so fewer silos than the rest of the country and frankly, the world. Yeah. It's New York. For all you New Yorkers, my one of my favorite cities. Magic. If there were just just a little more nature, but I don't know, are people, people are the nature. There's pox. Yeah. I heard the Boston accent. There's pox, <laughs> pox. Well, I know we're at time that we have this uh, ritual that we do. Since since we're gonna take this conversation live on our podcast, right when uh, I want to get the book title exactly right: "The Power of Strangers: The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World" is coming out on July thirteenth. Correct. So we're going to make sure that the podcast episode goes live the week that your book baby gets born awesome. and get to shout it out. And it's going to have all kinds of tips. And, you know, of course, we're going to read them because we love teaching people about how to do this stuff, too. I like to geek out on all the psychological impediments to connecting that aren't the outward stuff, the real weird shit.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> but, you know, there's all these people that listen on sidewalks. So I'm going to hand off the mic. You get to speak to them. I'm out of the way. And you can say to them, whatever you want, w- words of wisdom or a wish directly to those people as our closing closing question.
1: Yeah, I mean, don't lose your curiosity. Um, increasingly, I've become convinced that curiosity, like good faith curiosity, real, not morbid curiosity, but like genuine curiosity is... Um, it's something that some people are born with, but it's something that other people can cultivate. Um, I think it can leave us very easily. I think it needs to be exercised in order to remain strong. Um, I think it needs to be your first response to, to the world, um, anything that happens. If you can train yourself to say, like, I wonder why this person's saying that instead of saying, like, the hell with this person for saying that. Um, I think that's an enormously beneficial thing for individuals and for cultures. So for everyone who does Sidewalk Talk, uh, and I hope to join that those ranks soon enough, um, I commend you for this. This is super valuable work. It helps the people you're talking to. It helps you. Um, and it helps you exercise that curiosity muscle. So if you can spread that gospel and uh, and get other people comfortable with this and get them out there in the chairs and the streets too, um, I hope you do. And I hope it keeps growing.
0: Spreading the gospel of curiosity. I love that, Joe. Thanks for being here with us. And congratulations on this book baby. And I can't wait to like get a couple beers in you and see, really hear that Boston accent come out sometime <laughs> when I come visit. <laughs> yeah.
1: Comes out when I get when I get a uh, yeah, loud, like a yeah. When I get loud and, and half, half in the bag, you'll hear it. <laughs> but thanks so All much. Right. Thanks for having me on. It's it's so it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you do such good work. So this has been great.
0: Thanks, Joe well and everyone there's lots of information about joe and his book in the show notes when the podcast comes out so be sure and go check it out if you actually want to learn how to be more curious if you actually want to learn how to like show up in the world in a different way then pick up this book because it'll give you the the 101 all right great Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from, and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.